beautiful and fetching listeners, wherever in time, space, or on the globe you are, I and my fantastic, beautiful, wonderful, erudite co-host Beth are here with a very special guest on this sadly significant day. August 8th, 1974, our 37th president, Richard Milhouse Nixon, resigned from office. Apropos of that, particularly unique date, we are covering the film All the President's Men, starring Robert Redford and Dustin Hoffman and a host of other celebs. And we have also our very own celeb, editorial director for Politico, Marty Cady. Are you there? I'm right here. He's right hey. here. He's, he's got a voice for radio. For Good podcasting. evening, senior, senior editor for Politico. Yeah. That's right. Tell us a little bit about yourself, Marty. Why are you and All the President's Men, the film, a good fit? This movie is basically like everything for journalists of my generation, and I think, I hope. Are you uh, like a boomer or a zoomer or what? I'm I'm Gen X. You okay. Know? Nice oh movie. yeah. Wow. Own it, baby. I was, I was a one-year-old baby when the Watergate break-in happened in 1972. Yeah. So um, this movie—it's the best journalism movie of all time. It. Yeah inspired hundreds of thousands of young journalists to to major in journalists to think that they yeah. wanted to become the next Woodward and Bernstein. It's yeah. like we all go into this business saying, wow, that's what I want to do. It's the most impactful journalism movie ever. And being a Dietzy native yeah. and the son of a Washington Post former advertising executive, mm. uh, it just took on even more meaning for me. So I feel like this movie has sort of been with me for my entire life in a way. Wow, it's so impactful and, and, and meaningful to you. And I've known, of course, of, of this film for, for decades, but this was my first and second viewing this week. Beth, had you seen it before? Oh, yeah, I, I had seen it before. My question to you, Marty, would be, um, you were a baby. Uh, I wasn't. But <laughs> And I remember the TV sets. Growing up, I was at my grandmother's a lot. She was taking care of us. But I remember the TV sets being on in the afternoon. Soap operas being preempted and uh, and even the grownups around talking about Watergate, Watergate, Watergate. And I had this one great aunt who loved Nixon and she said, Nixon's going to come out of this smelling like a rose. You'll see. (laughs) But my I'm curious growing up because you were you were very small when Watergate happened. uh, One year old. What, what, What was your first interaction encounter with the term Watergate and what that meant? Oh, gosh, that's an interesting question. I feel like I really didn't understand it until high school. So this movie was made in 1976, and I was assigned a term paper in AP U.S. History. Remember this, which would have been about 1986 or 1987. And I chose Watergate because I'm like, oh, yeah, my dad told me about the importance of Watergate at some point. (laughs) And Woodward and Bernstein, and he sold ads for the Washington Post. And this was so I, so I wrote this term paper, and that was when I first watched it. And I read I read the book oh, as oh, well. Question, oh, okay. question: How accurate yeah. or close to the book is the film? How many liberties? Uh, <laughs> well, you know, if you read the most recent article in the Washington Post magazine on the 50th anniversary of the break-in, I guess uh, I there's heard. a lot of details about how Woodward saw the script. And he kept marking through things, saying, that's not right. Don't say that. That's not right. And Woodward was a stickler for yeah, okay. for detail and for accuracy. So apparently it was very accurate. There's there's a few liberties with one-liners uh, that sounded better in film but actually didn't happen in 
real life, yeah. but um, it's very accurate. And um, I, I have a funny story about, can I, can I yeah. sidetrack on that? Oh, yeah. No, side, side away. Junior in high away. school and my, I'm writing this paper and I'm researching Watergate and my dad says, I'm going to get you an interview with Bob Woodward. And I said, wait, 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 what, what? Wow. And he an a. sends Woodward a note and Woodward ignores him. And he sends another note. And he's like, just take 15 minutes with my son. Yeah. And he's like, okay. So I go in and I'm this 16 year old kid and I'm like shaking. I'm in Bob mm. Woodward's office. Oh man. We, we were shaking like, before you came on tonight. By <laughs> yeah. <laughs> just trembling. With starstruck, man. And I remember he's got this crisp white shirt. Remember, this is probably 1987 so it's been 15 years since watergate yeah. bob woodward was the biggest deal in the world yeah. in journalism yeah. and i was this little junior in high school and he says is your tape recorder working do you have <laughs> extra batteries <laughs> so i asked him a few questions and uh there's two things i remember about the interview yeah. uh, i probably just blacked out for the rest because i was so nervous <laughs> <laughs> I asked him about deep throat. He's like, I'm not going to go beyond what we said in the book. Okay. Mm-hmm. Nice try. Yeah. I said, how will Nixon be remembered? And he made this analogy and he said, like the captain of the Titanic, he may have had a lot of good you know, moments, but driving that ship. But what is the captain of the Titanic remembered for? So that was for his being a Nixon coward and nightmare. not calling it though. <laughs> right. Well, yeah. and, and ignoring the, you know, yeah. yeah so, Nixon had a lot of amazing accomplishments that I think history misses. Opening yeah. up China, you know, actually did a lot on civil rights. You know, they created um, new executive agencies, but he resigned in scandal. Do you think he, because by today's standards, it, to be honest, it, it looks like uh, a little bit of shoplifting compared to, yeah. to some of the... The things a we third see. rate burglary. That's what yeah. Ronald Ziegler called it. Uh, yeah. yeah. But see, you're missing so cool. what what Mark felt deep throat said. It's not it's not just the third rate burglary. Yeah. It's not yeah, just exactly. the Don Z, the Don Segretti's. It's it's all of it. Yeah. And yeah. And, and, and here I feel like they're not much different. Maybe the amounts of money are different. You know, more money than six million dollars a day. Imagine yeah. what that you know that kind of corruption is. In but but he went down in, in this ignominious way, right? He stands as our only president to have done that. And yet he won that, that second term by a landslide, didn't he, Marty? Didn't oh, he yeah. It was, yes. it was oh, the 72 election was overwhelming. Yeah. Remember, they were afraid of Muskie. So they did all the dirty tricks. This is where Segretti, Donald Segretti, the, the young dirty trickster, mattered. He's that real, he I the, hope you explain him because he was really <laughs> odd in the film. <laughs> oh, he, uh, you know, I don't want to jump like 20 scenes ahead, but I just yeah. rewatched that scene. He's this very Yeah, tell fragile. us now. We don't go linear, so that's fine. <laughs> no, I mean, very, no, it's okay. Yeah. You had a layer cake in mind, and I I, I wanna, wanted to kind of no, follow no, the layer okay. cake. No, so so where were we? Where were Segeti, we? Um, but, um, so you're talking Segeti. about me yeah, and Bernstein but, just, as a young lad yeah. and, and being uh, Woodward. I met Woodward. Woodward, yeah. sorry. Never met, I've never met Bernstein. And I've met Ben Bradley, by the way. Wow. Uh, another he is everything you imagine, or he was. He died years ago. Mm. That like, would well rough yeah. gruff and scary and like yeah. the way you gotta get by in this business yeah. is uh, <laughs> I was like, What? What? He, he's <laughs> the Mr. Grant, isn't he? Oh, my gosh. Davis. Yeah. The reason, I mean, McGovern was a terrible candidate. I mean, I don't know if, uh, you know, my parents too are much liberals. Too much too soon or what? 
Uh, you know, they were afraid of Muskie, and Segretti carried out some of the dirty tricks, the fake letters, the legendary Canuck letter where yeah. they fa- he faked a letter in which uh, Muskie allegedly used the term Canuck to slur Canadians. He leaked it. It was fake. It blew up part of his campaign. I, I have an insertion question. That's alluded to, you know, in a pretty big scene in, in the yeah. film, film yeah. as they would say in Ireland. But it's not really explained to a present-day audience why that would be right. significant. Is it, it is a pejorative term? Is that Was that yes. the main issue or the content? It was a pejorative of... term against Canadians. And yeah. Donald Segretti, who was a young, dir- dirty trickster for the Nixon campaign, <laughs> wrote a fake letter in which Muskie use the term and that hurt muskie muskie eventually fell to the wayside mcgovern was much more liberal and a weaker candidate and nixon ran away with it the the country didn't care about watergate in november of 1972 uh, which was five months after the break-in i thought he denied it though in the film he said he didn't write that letter it was clausen that's right that's right segretti i'm sorry Segretti was involved in a lot of dirty tricks, but Clausen was involved in the letter. That's right. I think what's well, confusing about the whole narrative here is literally the title, All the President's Men. You're like, there's Clausen and Segretti and Haldeman and Sloan and, you know, Liddy and Colson and then all the bar- burglars. And they're all just these conniving guys trying to yeah. <laughs> take take the uh, this corruption to a level that we've never seen in um is it that we've never trip. seen it and it goes on with every administration or was it unprecedented, Marty? Well, it had probably gone on. You know, if you talk to real presidential history nerds, they'll say, well, the election of 1800 was so nasty. Remember, Jefferson accused uh, you know, John Adams of being a hermaphrodite or something <laughs> like that. So. How dare you, sir? Meet me at dawn you with your mad. second. <laughs> yes. Pistols at dawn. <laughs> I was going to ask, you did have an interesting layer cake you set up, how you saw this in in, in three layers. And I was wondering yeah. if you could go into that, because I think sure. that first layer is perfect to dive into with the opening of the film, because you and I were talking about this, the, or we, the three of us were talking about the helicopter landing in the very beginning. And yeah. what is that all about? And is it a State of the Union address? And, and then Sam just talking about how popular Nixon was. So if you could go into the, that layer cake, that'd be great. So I feel like there's three layers to this. There's the obvious one, which is the title of the movie, yeah. All the President's Men. It's about all these sort of corrupt and conniving, ambitious, but in the end, somewhat incompetent yeah. men around Nixon. It's about the, the, the power and the corruption. It's the oldest story in politics. Yeah. The second layer is the most substantive one for the purposes of this movie, um, which is about journalism. It's about how reporters do their job. And the movie is so tight around that. There isn't a lot of outside life in this movie. Like, here's what I'm doing. Here's my my love interest. Here's my drama in my life. It's literally just these guys doing their job, knocking on doors, typing on typewriters, making phone calls, digging through documents. Those are the two that most people think of it, but, yeah. you know, and for your audience, uh, I don't know if this matters as much to, to them, but like for me as a local DC area native, there's this third layer, which is like the scenes of Washington DC, which as a, as a local, there's so many things I hear and see and pick up on, yeah. you know, there, there's a, there's so many nice aerial scenes. 
they're pulling out of the Washington Post parking garage. I've been in and out in that parking garage many times. It's long since demolished. Yeah. They're pulling down a road one night with this cool pan away where you see the Washington Monument in the distance. And, and I'm, I think so they're pulling they're around U Street and they're making a right on 17th Street. <laughs> In the very beginning, if you remember when the Watergate burglars are arraigned, yes, there's uh, just some background chatter. But I tuned into that, and there was the person before the Watergate burglars was being arraigned on uh, soliciting prostitution mm -hmm. at 14th and U Street. Yeah. Yeah. That is in a different era. Up through the late 80s into the early 90s, the women of the night would literally walk down 14th and U Street, yeah. and the guys, you know would would go up and um you know make they their deals with go. prostitutes but 14th and U is a famous corner in in in, in, in dc and it was where the prostitutes were and of course the scenes of the kennedy center when he's talking to the young oh yeah i you know there. i i i paused the film there to see what is that it's the um, last time when he meets with I think that's his first trip to go see Deep Throat. Oh, okay. No, yes, it's yes. it's the young woman who's like, oh, you're attractive. Remember Bernstein, who, who uh, Sharon Lyons, I think was a, her name. Yeah, bit of a bit of a ladies' man there, and he's like, oh, you're very attractive. And then like, so tell me, you know, who you work for and how it works. So that is on the terrace at the Kennedy Center. Oh, right? oh know. my God. Okay, I, I was thinking of a night shot where he goes down after here. He gets the letter. Okay, from yes, I wanted to ask you where were they having lunch? I was dying yep. to know where that was. Beautiful. Yeah. Yeah, so Dustin Hoffman was very sexy, by the way. I just want to just put that out there for agreed for substance. But she was awfully I'll, cute too. I'll trust your uh, your judgment there, Dustin Hoffman. But Robert Redford, you know, we could talk about Robert Redford for the entire. Oh, it's podcast time for him like to go to. naturally gray now. It's really <laughs> He's <laughs> only eighty five. Okay. So yeah, yeah. Marty, I wanted to ask you. I have so many questions. So many questions. There, a lot of the film takes place in the newsroom itself. How accurate? Was that a portrayal of with the phones ringing and the tap, tap, tapping of the and, and over talking and, you know, cacophony? How, you know, chaos and pandemonium at the. Oh, it's, uh, it was incredibly accurate. They uh, the actors did a lot of their own research. Yeah. They took field trips to the Washington Post newsroom. They spent time there. My mom, who had worked in the classified section, I think, told me once that they saw Redford and. Hoffman leaving the newsroom after shooting oh. B-roll and, and learning, you know, about it. So they spent time there, and then they yeah. recreated the the, the post newsroom Very in cool. a studio. But everything was accurate. I mean, I've been in that newsroom, um, not in the '70s, but in the '80s. I've been in that newsroom, and yeah. the you know the orange and red colors and the stacks of paper. I mean, I it was a mess. Yeah. Oh wow. And the, the thing is, we think of journalists as, these days as being these, you know, a little bit more. You know, the people you see on TV, they're crisp and elite like journalists spray painted really, and, and and just calm yeah. and, and unwrinkled yes journalists are like schlubby working class people for most of the history of journalism i mean did you notice the stains on oh. bernstein's shirt the movie yes <laughs> really, like, pointed that he's out. wearing did his tennis just... shoes his pants are too long he's you know and he seemed like a foil to woodward who seemed to you know dress for work maybe he only had the one corduroy suit but he he was going to wear it with a tie they seemed to be opposites yeah. You had a question, Sam, about analog, the analog oh, oh, era yes. of I journalism have a very, versus. A very important question. Throughout the, and I think these are uh, uh, on show in the Museum of Watergate Notes or something. You probably know, Marty. The paper they use with the with the large red margins, is that a thing yeah. of the past or is that a current? What, what? <laughs> 
What is with that? I actually had to look that up, and it was some sort of paper that had multiple ply, like uh, like carbon paper, yeah. so that they could have copies, multiple copies, um, sent around to what for the reporter, the editor, the people doing the um, the typesetting. I never saw that in my lifetime, in okay. my journalism career. We were uh, by the time I started, in uh, about nineteen eighty nine ninety, we had big clunky computers. Yeah. But I'd never seen that. I actually had to look that up. But I have one point about the typewriters. Like, I yes. from this is like a signature of the movie. Yeah. And rewatching it in preparation for the podcast with yeah. you, you guys, the sa- the soundtrack of this movie is typewriters. The very first sound <sighs> yes. and image yeah. you see. Oh my god! It's is like gunshot, isn't it? Chuck, chuck, yeah. Chuck. And then I jumped at that. You hear it throughout. Like you always hear the typewriters yeah. from the beginning to the end, and then Brilliant. the very, very. Not to jump to the end, but like when when the uh, oh, you can you can spoil the, this uh, one. His we we know it. We know what happens, kind of spoiled like, it already. Nixon resigns. Nixon resigns, and um, you know, newsrooms don't sound like that anymore. I hate to you know just point you, but like that was that a burning the, question we had. Like with the advent of, of digital, yeah, we is it all just sort of remote and quiet, and or, or do you get uh, any of that hustle and grind? Well, I need to go pre-pandemic because right now the newsroom is 80% yeah. oh, empty where I work. Yeah. But uh, mm. it's uh, it's people talking. It's it's more like TV's turned up to listen to what's happening. We've okay. got an election call. We've got the president talking. Okay. You know, laptops aren't loud and clacky anymore. Yeah. <laughs> you know, something I noticed you were talking about the clacking. Well, you also made me think of the score, Marty. But the clacking at the end, I remember Woodward has said this in a few interviews about the, I guess, and I don't know anything about this. You probably would, and I'm sure your father does, that the the old, he talks about the old building mm-hmm. and that when the presses would run, that the whole building would shake. Yes. And at yes. the end of the film, when it, to me, that clacking just gets louder. There's the gunfire, the salute. Because he's been inaugurated for another term, but then you hear that clacking and it just gets louder, and you're, you can feel the vibration coming off of the screen. Yeah. And I, I felt like that was sort of a, a sort of a tribute to the free press. That shot and just the sound of the clacking typewriters, and then the right. the presses themselves. It it really becomes apparent what the fourth pillar of democracy is about when I watch this film. I think we've heard that all our lives, but this film, it it just shows you how integral to the entire process and right to knowledge the press is, and that gave me a greater appreciation for it as well. On top of the sound bites, on top of the you know the news footage, and I don't know where I'm going with that. So I'm just enjoying listening to you guys, you know, talk about the tribute to the free press and the importance of democracy. Like you, you you keep going. Like I I love that. (laughs) We do listen, Marty. We love the free press. We we do. (laughs) I spent the last six years being called, uh, you know, enemy of the people, and you know, I could show you some hate mail that I've gotten in my career. Oh my God, have have some hate. That's because everyone can be anonymous on. Twitter now and just and crit- be an criticisms. They don't know the work that goes from into yours it. truly. Jesus. Uh, <laughs> but let me let me tell you a, a, a it real comes life from a good place though. The, yeah. Of course, of course. We we love criticism. You know, it just goes right into the circular file. Um, <laughs> let me uh, tell you about the presses were in the basement of the building and in a different era. And I would go and visit my dad, and sometimes he'd be like, "Want to go into the paper? I have to go this weekend." And 
they had these windows in the lobby and you could see the presses, these big, huge newspaper printing presses. Like they kind of looked like, you know, what they looked like in Citizen Kane or in uh, uh, Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. They I'm hadn't picturing changed that. Yes. much, right? So when they would run the presses, they had these opaque iron grates that would come down so you couldn't see the presses running okay. because it, they were competitive. They didn't want the bureau chief of the New York Times or the Washington Star people to come see, like, what was on the front page and try to go steal it. You so, know what popped in my head as you're describing this is like a brewery where you can see the big vats, but you don't know what the yeah. ingredients are going into those vats. That's, That's it. And I actually delivered the Washington Post as a kid a few oh. times as a oh. paper boy. You're and so I, wholesome. I, tell people, I know, right? I tell people <laughs> I work with said, you know, I delivered the Washington Post at 5 a.m. on a Sunday in a foot of snow in the pitch black, and it's not even a joke. It's totally true. I, I covered my brother's paper. He had injured or – no, he broke his wrist at school, and I had to cover his paper out for him. And there is something really cool about being up early on a Sunday morning, and when where it snowed on you, it, like, downpoured on me. And I just remember getting home and thinking, my brother does this, <laughs> you know, and just yeah. there, there is something so wonderful about – that tradition of the the morning paper. I, I miss the thwack and sometimes yeah. the squash. I, I miss it. What do you do? You miss print, Marty? I do. Or is that a tricky question? A, I mean, you know, from a personal reader standpoint, yeah, I miss it because I still get a Sunday Washington Post delivered. Oh. It can it, it comes basically free with the digital subscription. Yeah. So. I get it, and you know what? You know how I read it now. But I miss the the feeling of surprise and serendipity yeah. that comes with flipping through a paper and like, ooh, that's interesting. Yeah. I read the print edition differently now. I don't read the political news or the world news because I already knew that. I read it on yeah. online. I read it on WashingtonPost.com. I saw it on Twitter. I got a news alert. So I try to pick out articles that I would never so bother that's a, to read. That's a beautiful thing. My, I'm going to get a subscription. Yeah, sure, you can get the um, New York Times delivered for a, an exorbitant fee to uh, Moment But Ohio. I do miss those partitions, those sections. You know, I would yeah. never pick up sports now, but I might if I had my paper in my hand. I try to read things in print in the print edition that I wouldn't read in the in the way I've curated my news feed yeah. now. Yeah. You know, oh, I'm going to read this article about how to cook with mushrooms. Oh, I'm going to yeah. read this piece about traveling to Croatia, you know, like. Let me talk about that, what you just yeah. said. You said the way you've curated your news sources. I mm -hmm. feel like my algorithm or the powers that be at Apple News have curated my news and how I receive it. Because maybe I lingered yeah. on a particular article. I mean, you have often. to. Sure. I mean, we get the news that we want now rather than the news that we need. Mm -hmm. I think that's a societal problem, and it's a yeah. cultural yeah, education a, problem. That is a great observation, Marty. Yeah, it really, really is. Um, one Criticism. of my sources that I read, uh, and you're familiar with it, you can name it if you want or not. It's said by this author that what happened with Nixon was the dividing line between old Washington and new, and that we grew into a more polarized and cynical society with that resignation would you agree with that, or are you more optimistic about the afters, the aftermath? Nixon was a clear dividing line in how we viewed America. Like We'd already been through a civil war and a depression and presidential assassinations. So yeah. the country had been through a lot in, yeah. in the 
195 years preceding Richard Nixon's resignation, okay, or however many years it was. But I just don't think that we've been exposed in just the very clear, bald way of like, wow, this is how things really work. This is, you know, it made the country more cynical. Yeah, I, I have a quote here that said this event led Dems, particularly Watergate babies, i.e. you, to become a particular breed of cynical. When I speak to you, I don't get that cynicism. I don't feel, oh, he's a very cynical, negative person, and and, and your work doesn't present that that either. And look, the American people have a short memory. You know, Ronald Reagan was a beloved president who won however many states, 48 states, uh, when he beat uh, Mon. People were inspired again. Was it 48? It was something like that. that. Mondale got got D.C. and and, and his home state of Minnesota. No, it'll never happen again. No. No. And then remember, a lot of people were inspired by Obama. We know a lot of people hated Obama, but he was inspiring. That was an inspiring time. But now it's hard to there's no human right now that could possibly come onto the scene and be like, wow, I'm so inspired in that Obama, Reagan, Kennedy, FDR style feeling that says this is the guy. It's going to be like, maybe this is the guy who's a little bit better than the other guy. Yeah, I disagree because we've had scandal throughout our the whole history of, of our country. We, it, you, I, it's like you said, we do have short memories, and it, yeah. it's just just because it's well, not that Well, thank you, twenty four hours uh, news cycle. We we have to move on to the next thing. We can't yeah. digest. So, is the news uh, new form of presenting this creating our short memory, or are we writing long, um, being manipulated by? I don't always like to blame the 24-7 news cycle and the media outlets that produce it. We asked for it. You know, we, yeah. we consume it. We like oh, yeah. it. It's, um, I have this riff that I do when I, when I speak to audiences about the yeah. media. I said, you know what? Maybe the media is like that you like consuming that makes you feel good that you agree with the political media. It's yeah. like chocolate ice cream. Yeah. You know, um, maybe your dad's chocolate ice cream is Fox News. Maybe yeah. yours is NPR. Mine is Politico or something on ESPN. Yeah. But I always say you need to treat your media consumption like your diet. Yeah. You can have some chocolate ice cream, yeah. but then oh. you can have some wine, but you also need some spinach and some vegetables and some strawberries and yeah. maybe, you know. <laughs> Wait, say strawberries <laughs> again, please. Strawberries. Okay. <laughs> that's such a that's ASMR right there, baby. That's that's <laughs> You know what? You we, you went down the layer cake and then you, you oh, yeah. kinda lingered lovingly over the visuals yeah. and sort of the yeah. the ode to DC. Yeah. And maybe we could wrap up a little bit more of the ode to DC and then and then move on. And you forgot your word your phrase that I absolutely loved when you mentioned it the other night. A reporter procedural, like we we're, we're in love with criminal procedurals, and that's but I love that phrase, reporter yeah. procedural. That's what this movie is, right? You've seen Law and Order, you've watched detective movies, you've read, you know, detective novels. That's really what this is, and this is why I'm on the podcast with you guys because yeah. I'm a journalist and I love journalism, yeah. and this is you a story about how journalists conducted themselves on the biggest story in American political history. They didn't just have something fall in their lap. The only thing that fell in anyone's lap was that Woodward happened to be the guy on duty on a Saturday morning when a burglary happened and he got sent to the courthouse. 
from oh, that wait. point. Yeah, because Sam had some questions about I have about a question exactly about how that. Did he who get is, the story? Who is the fellow, he, the lawyer he encounters at the courthouse? I can't remember his name. Uh, right, right. Marcus, right? Remember. Or Markham? Markham. Markham, yeah. Uh, it was Markham never clear from the certain. movie who Markham is. I know it's past, that, that they already had found counsel. Was Markham responsible for he, he was some lawyer who was involved with the committee to reelect the president, creep, as we called it. And he was there to listen in. And then he's like, I'm not here. It's a very mysterious scene. I'm not really he's here. He's very bizarre. Like, oh, I, I just actor, have nothing to say. That's the only reason I'm not talking. <laughs> he's bizarre and kind of quirky. I just yeah. wondered if he had a bigger part than was suggested there. But if you, if you, the whole scope of the movie, and I, I tried to take notes during various scenes. And like, yeah. I keep writing down. They're calling people. They're taking notes. They're calling people. They're taking notes. They're knocking on doors. Is it that easy to call up the White House and just say, hey, is, is so-and-so there? And then the whoever's answering says, no, not here, but you might try him here. Is it that um, friendly? Not anymore. I yeah. mean, I don't call the White House anymore, but yeah. I was a reporter who had to call the White House. In What's the number? Presidency. Oh, gosh. it's Is it 456-1414? Hold on. Hold Let's on. all call. We can I mean, that's the switchboard, right? And now the way – I mean, yes, you can ask for someone, and it'll probably go to voicemail because they're like, yes, the uh, – how do I contact the president of the United States? <laughs> I just Googled it. 456-1414. That's a 202 okay. area. Call in, everyone. Tell Joey's <laughs> doing a good job. Uh, you know how it really Order works pieces. now is that you get their cell phones, yeah. and then if you're communicating in a particularly uh, off-the-record way, you use an app called Signal, which I actually use. Ooh. And when I downloaded Signal, it's an encrypted app. And they're not supposed to, people at the White House aren't supposed to use it because it's not sanctioned. But if you're trying to communicate with secret sources and journalism, Signal is like the deep throat of today because it's an encrypted app. Oh. Yeah. And uh, I kid you not, when I downloaded it and it synced with my phone contacts, the only people on there were reporters and um, people in the intelligence agencies who I known in a in a past reporting life so then why all the breaks or, or we've got these emails and texts and, and what have you wouldn't everybody be cautious enough to to make sure that their their material is encrypted i guess not uh, no but... no i mean you know we, we see now like the january 6th uh commission is finding emails and texts because they've subpoenaed it all and you yeah. can't destroy that because that's an even worse crime oh. so um People should be using Signal and then having messages that disappear within, you know, 24 hours, which you can do. So okay. these people are not not everyone's is smart and savvy in Washington. Or tech, as, tech as, savvy, yeah. tech savvy, exactly. Yeah. Um, you know, as a, the part of that layer cake is an ode to to DC, and and you're yes. certainly a denizen of the area. What for tourists like myself, and perhaps Beth knows it better, but I, I certainly would be a tourist. I know the big big ticket things. I know the Washington Monument and the Capitol Building and, you know, things like of this nature. But what are some other things that made your blood rush that made you say, that's my D.C., that's my D.C.? I mean, I'll start with a couple of the small ones and then build toward what I think is the iconic okay. visual of the movie. Yeah. Just sometimes when they're walking outside the Washington Post building, you know, that it was a very like what is a brutalist architecture building. We love but that term, by the way. It, well, that's the term. That's the turn, right? And that's all yeah. those buildings. Yeah. Not architecturally sexy, but yeah. it was just a normal building. It was not this majestic building yeah. uh, like the Chicago Tribune one in yeah. uh, on the river in Chicago. They're coming and going from the Justice Department. You know, you see those like, yes, I've been there. Yeah. And uh, they're driving down the city streets. They're going through Georgetown. And 
you just pick up. I mean, DC is not like New York or Chicago. No, it's, it's, not. it's a kind of leafy, you know, low rise city. A low rise city. I like that. Okay. Yeah, because you can't have any, um, you know, buildings past a certain height. Okay. But the one that really gets me from both a DC perspective, a journalism perspective, and, yeah. a, and a movie visual perspective is when they go to the Library of Con- Congress oh, reading room yes. and they yeah. ask for all the cards that were checked out um, by people from the White House to see, like, what are they investigating? Are they trying to look into Ted Kennedy and Chappaquiddick? Remember that scene in the movie? <laughs> yes, and, uh, I thought that was a little strange, Yeah, but go ahead. It fell off key, like, why do they care about Ted Kennedy and Chappaquiddick? The reality is they were concerned that he was going to run for president, Yeah, and mm. he was going to be a danger. I kind of deduced like, that, yes. but I thought, what? what? Is that the cause of all of this? It can't be. Well, Ted Kennedy was a real threat to, you know— before he became a little bit of the caricature yeah. in the, the later right. yeah. Yeah. Ted, think of Ted Kennedy in 72. His brother was killed in 63. His yeah. other brother was killed in 68. Yeah. He was the younger Kennedy. He'd, you know, the, the country still kind of loved the Kennedys back then. Yeah. So they were investigating yeah. him. But there's the scene where they check out from the card catalog in the library and they start going through these things and they zoom up, 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 up. And there's this great dome. If you know what the Library of Congress looks like, next year but there's this zoom out and it's this beautiful circular room where they have um you know that shot. they call the reading room those concentric and circles of desks out. just wow it's so cool and it's also a tribute to the tedious work of reporting Ooh. they're just spending hours and hours going through little pieces of paper to find a clue yeah and i think that's what a lot of the general public now especially but even probably back then didn't realize the work that goes on behind the scenes building up to publishing the printed word, yeah. I think, is severely underestimated, yeah. you know, it, by then, but especially now, yeah. with how much access to information everyone has. Yeah. That's That scene fades as the camera pulls back, then it turns yeah. to uh, the, you see the profile of the Capitol and then you see them. It's actually reflected in the glass door as they're the walking out. Yeah. So yeah. I got the impression that is. I don't know this, and I've actually been in the Library of Congress. Has but a, a library are they right open? <laughs> I did. I got a library card while we were there on vacation <laughs> one summer. It was amazing. I I loved D.C. and I was born in Silver Spring, but I have no memory of it because my family moved down here when I was an infant. But I was wondering, is it open all night? <laughs> because it's not open get, all night. You get that impression that they were there yeah, all night long right. as they're walking it's out. It's not open all night. It is open to the public. But, you know, I worked in the Capitol building uh, as a congressional reporter for uh, nearly a decade. So I walked those halls and had the press pass. Oh, that's right. Listeners, and, uh, we've got a man here who doesn't not only has you have this man. impressive position here, but your CV <laughs> is pretty impressive, Marty. Worn through his the ox, the soles on his Oxfords. Yeah. Tell us a little bit more about trail. your CV. You, you you worked the congressional beat. You you worked. You you've been on campaign trails. You've done the the footwork. Well, I've done a lot of the cool national political and congressional stuff. But I will yeah. tell you, my very first job in journalism was at a small newspaper in Northern Virginia, yeah. um, where they said, "Here's the job. You uh, copy edit stories from 6 p.m. to 3 a.m. and we will pay <laughs> you nine dollars an hour for this," which wow. was in 1993. And uh, eight I, eighteen thousand dollars a year was not much even in nineteen ninety three. So, uh, you know, I slogged it out at some small newspapers for very little money. Um, Is this during actually, school or after you graduated? It was right when I graduated. Tell I us your alma mater because I know you're proud of it. I went to the University of Virginia, a UVA yeah. grad, no journalism school there, 
That's not a charm school, folks. UVA is not a charm school, mister. Oh, when are you going to do that? (laughs) What a great line. We have to do it. Uh, I will come back just for Silence of the Lambs if you'll have me. Okay, we will. (laughs) We'd love to have you as a repeat recurring guest. But uh, And I worked my way up through a few small newspapers, one in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. Then I became a business journalist and went to the Washington Business Journal, where I met my wife and your dear friend, Suze. I hear she's really Uh, cool. She's totally cool. And, she's all right, uh, man. After uh, we almost 21 years, we're still married, so uh, we must be doing something. Uh, I've right. known her longer, honestly. <laughs> now she's going to have to listen to this. She's really going to listen to this podcast. And be like, no, she's she's a good listener. I'm so glad. You're she, Saint Marty. <laughs> I would say Suze is the saint, but we'll we'll split the difference. Suze, this line is for you. And then I got into congressional quarterly as a reporter. Yeah. And that's where I really. And that was 20 years ago. Uh, this August. Wow. And uh, that's where I really got well, sucked into the political and congressional beat. And, you know, it's so like rub shoulders with Obama and you go to the the correspondence dinner. What is the, that one? Yeah, the White House, <laughs> the White House correspondence dinner. dinner. You've seen celebs. You've interacted with, with all sorts. Yeah. I mean, I've been very fortunate to be to do all these cool things. But the day to day reality is that, like, you're not just sort of like hanging out with politicians you wear comfortable shoes in the capitol because you're running back and forth chasing them down asking them questions you know yeah in my jobs i talk to staff ask them what's in the legislation you go to the committee room you you pigeonhole senators say are you going to support this amendment and why you read the bill you know you look at documents so getting back to what this movie all the president's men really shows us is like it's not all about the front page byline and the social media feed of some high profile reporter or I know all the people on CNN, but like that's what happens behind the scenes. Like we're still yeah. in a digital era yeah. knocking on doors and making phone calls. It uh-huh. might be a text. It might yeah. be a, you know, a different way of communication, but good reporters um, still do the grunt work before they get to the point where they put the word on the printed page or the digital page, if you will. So you've got to have that internal drive and that code of ethics, I, I presume, too. Yeah, there's a there's a sense. I was telling Sam that, uh, that there have, she was going to ask you, like, the liberty that they had to just go. <laughs> yes, I had a big question. And do whatever they wanted to do. And she's like, is it really like that? You just so take off because you've got a lead and it's no problem. You're not in the and... office. So what, what's going on? <laughs> uh, that's a good question because it depends on the editor. Yeah. And if you're a good reporter and your editor trusts you and say, I need to chase something, you'll say, go, go, go. Uh, some editors want to micromanage a little bit more. As an yeah. editor, I've tried. To, it depends on the reporter. Yeah. You know, I've tried to say, all right. If you got it, get back to me and we'll run with it. Yeah. And we all, as once you become an editor, you want to quote Ben Bradley and be like, there's that scene where he goes, fuck it, let's run it. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Are we allowed yeah. to curse on your podcast? You, you can say whatever you want. Yeah. <laughs> By the way, I have a, a question for you, Marty. I was a little confused when I watched the movie about the hierarchy that Bernstein and would, would uh, answer to. I, I got that Ben Bradley, the Jason Robard character, was, right. was the grand poobah. I didn't quite understand the Jack Warden and the um, ah shoot uh, Martin Balsam roles, Howard Simmons, Simons, and um, yeah. Harry Rosenfeld. Like, are those lesser editors, There's, or what are they? Yeah, so one of them is the Metro editor, okay, right? And I'm going to mix these up, but I think it's Simons. And then one of them is, I think, the managing editor, 
Okay. And then there's, so the, the real hierarchy is there's the top editor. Yeah. Sometimes it's the editor in chief. Sometimes it's the executive editor. In this case, it's Ben yeah. Bradley. Then there's a managing editor, sometimes two managing editors who, you know, run different broader sort of chunks of a newsroom. Yeah. And then there's section editors, Metro sports style, national, foreign. And, okay. you know, you can see in that, uh, in those little meetings, uh, where I love they those say, meetings. okay, foreign, what accurate? do you got? Believe it or not, it's kind of still accurate 50 yeah. years later. Yeah. I mean, I'm in those meetings every day. Obviously the technology is different. I um, mean, yeah. it's part Zoom, part, but yeah. you know, lately I've been going into the office and they go around, they say, okay, what are we, the editor in chief says, what are we covering today? Yeah. Um, Congress, what's happening on this bill? National security, what's happening with Pelosi in Taiwan? Uh, White yeah. House team, what's Biden up to? He's got this yeah. COVID event yeah. and they'll go around policy team, uh, healthcare team. What if somebody says local? What have you got? Nothing, man. There's nothing out there. We'll make something. What do they do if they come up or or you don't show up at the meeting? You nothing, I suppose. don't want to be in that position, to be honest with you. Like um, you could say, oh, nothing happened. It's a slow day. But you you don't want to not have a story, in other words. Yeah. I'll just say you want to come prepared to the morning news meeting uh, with some good ideas. It stands out if you say, I don't know. I'm just trying to figure things out. That would be a bad look. That's bad. That's look. a bad look. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah, I would. I would think. He didn't do these uh, Sam had an interesting question about. There's. Glad this, you remember my questions. Yes. <laughs> there is the scene where you know, Redford's been given the story. We Ooh. see. Yeah. Uh, Bernstein sniffing around, and uh, <laughs> he wants a piece of that. Well, no, and, he's he's a perfectionist, right, for the writing stuff. Well, like, he always polishing, he dips polishing. into the. You know, uh, Woodward puts a page. In the basket, mm-hmm. and then uh, yeah. Bernstein picks. Is that is that typical? The rewrite. That is would, would you totally out of line? Okay, okay, okay. Because okay. I was wondering what yeah. the heck that was. Do do people I mean, rewrite people's copy all the time? No, if I mean an editor. I mean, yeah. as an editor, I rewrite people's copy all the time. But so that's that was my job. ballsy and wrong. That he. Oh, did that. that was totally wrong. And, okay, uh, it's a funny scene because like. You know, in some newsrooms of a different era, there would Tell be a Tell us the scene again for those listening, please. <laughs> sure. So Woodward is trying to write the story about Colson's connection to yeah. uh, Watergate, right? Charles Colson, counsel to the president, whatever his title was. And he puts it in the basket. He types it on the typewriter, puts it in the basket. And the next phase is like someone's going to edit it. And Bernstein goes over there and he grabs it and he, he t- puts his own piece of paper in the typewriter and starts typing on it. Mm-hmm. And... Woodward sees him, what's going on there? And he puts his <laughs> other sheet in there and Bernstein grabs it and, and he goes, what are you doing? He says, uh, you're not clear. Your, 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 sto- your, your lead, the lead paragraph needs to be clear and concise. And, uh, you know, Woodward says, what did you write? Show me, you show me yours and I'll show you mine. I love that. Hey, I'm not looking for a fight here, one. but I took your fucking copy and I'm rewriting it. You know, <laughs> <Right>. just. <laughs> But, you know, Woodward says, yours is better, but don't do that again. Just ask me. That showed and, uh, me that Woodward had I, – I like that he said, I don't mind what you did. I minded the way you did it, and yours exactly. is better copy. Gave me a little hint of Woodward's what, – what is what he was made of, not ego. Well, and this is the reputation of the two men. Woodward is a meticulous digger, a guy who works in facts and mm-hmm. – sourcing and he's done this for 50 years now all the books and all the investigations of every presidency but he's not he was not known as being a um, florid and graceful writer especially Mm. at that time bernstein 
you know, was a little bit more of a hippie writer type. And he was known at the time as for being a better writer. Now, okay. You know, well, I got both, that obviously. sense watching it, but I, you know. Yeah. That's well, in Woodward, there's that line where Bernstein, Dustin Hoffman says, I'm in the business since I'm 16. I know what I'm doing here. And Woodward, uh, these are very different guys. If you want to yeah. talk about the individuals, like Bernstein didn't go to college. He got into the Washington Post as a copy boy, as a teenager. Yeah. He was a long haired Jewish radical. That's what he's <laughs> described. Yeah. Oh, and, wow. um, yeah. Uh, Woodward is a Yale graduate, had been in the Navy, and a uh, grew up in the Midwest. Uh, yeah. He says, I'm a Republican too in the movie. Yeah. Um, yeah. Son of a judge. So he's more of a, you know, a uh, button-down guy, and uh, it comes yeah. across in the movie, and it was true in real life, too. It's, it's in, the, in the movie, they say he'd only been working there eight months. What does he come from into the post? Like, what situation is he coming yeah. from? They, they gave him a tryout, apparently, and he failed, so they sent him out to the Montgomery County Sentinel, where you were the county in which he was born there, Beth, and he proved himself at the suburban newspaper, and then they brought him onto the post on the Metro desk, and that's how he got the story. He was not a wow. national reporter or a White House reporter. Oh. Like I said, the, the the lucky break was being the reporter who was on on a Saturday who had got sent over to the courthouse oh. because there was a break in at the Democratic National Committee headquarters at Watergate. Okay. Now, is it true that he and Leslie Stahl were an item? <laughs> Whoa, I don't know that one. Well, because there are a lot of documentaries out right now. The, Leslie Stahl's been in a lot of them because she was covering it from the CBS and talking head remote reporter. And and I never knew that Walter Cronkite had done these long expositionary <laughs> descriptions about what was going on with Watergate. I had no idea that he had done that kind of well, work to kind of explain the principal people. Yeah. But uh, well, this is yeah. a, ben, cool that's Walter a really did. good point about Watergate, because. You know, now when the Washington Post breaks a story, or Politico, for that matter, or the New York Times, it's online. It's on the Internet. It's on Twitter. It's on email. Everyone's talking about it. Cable news picks it up, yeah. like when Politico, tooting our uh, publication, broke mm -hmm. the news that we had obtained the draft of the Roe v. Wade opinion mm -hmm. back yeah. in May. Everyone in the country knows it. you got to remember, like, the Washington Post was a newspaper that was circulated in Maryland, D.C., and Virginia. Probably not much further than Baltimore, probably not much oh. further south than Fredericksburg. So they were covering this news. But the reason, the way the nation discovered more about Watergate was probably from Walter Cronkite. Wow, I hadn't thought of that, Marty. News. Yeah, Cronkite. I mean, yeah, go ahead. How did people in Iowa or Texas know about Watergate? Not necessarily. They weren't reading the Washington Post print edition in 1973. I didn't realize it didn't go national, that, that you wouldn't normally, unless you were a library, you maybe. No, exactly. That. The Times did have a national printing footprint. Okay. Because they had printing presses, but the Post, generally speaking, didn't have, they, I think they were published in, you know, they sent newspapers up on the train to New York or whatever, but um, it was still a local newspaper. Okay. But that just, Makes me think, because this is after the Pentagon Papers, and I, I, I'm like, when you think about it, that took a lot of, that took some stones. <laughs> or maybe they just felt like, well, we're gambling with house money at this point. Let's just go for it. Because they did want to raise their profile, didn't they? The Post did? They wanted yeah. to be a national paper. They did, and this is why, um, you know, Catherine Graham hired Ben Bradley 
to run the paper because they wanted to make a run at the, the New York Times. The New York Times is the national newspaper. The Washington Post was bought by um, Catherine's um, dad out of bankruptcy. And, you know, it was a very good newspaper, but they had national ambitions when um, Graham took over and hired Ben Bradley in the 60s. And uh, remember, the Pentagon Papers was before Watergate. Right. Yeah, yeah. that's what I'm so, saying. Um, it's like yeah. to wade into this because she actually in an interview kind of compared it. She's like kind of the Pentagon Papers sort of fell in. She said it more or less fell in that opportunity was there. But this was like wading into a river, not knowing how deep it is, really. Exactly. Or without knowing how deep it was. Yeah. And um, I just keep thinking that that had to have felt like a huge risk for everybody, you know, from the top all the way to the person delivering the papers. Yeah. I mean. But they did it, (laughs) which is amazing to me. Well, and there's a few moments during All the President's Men where they say, you know what? Gallup shows half the country hadn't even heard of Watergate. And then when Nixon gets uh, reelected in a landslide, you know, there's that moment where the reporters and, and the editors must be thinking, are we having any impact? You know, we're just we're un- uncovering significant corruption across the presidency. But the American people this don't is care. momentous. But the, there's this complacency until Walter says it or what? Till Walter Cronkite uh, says it, it's not. Really? I think, it, I, well, he had a huge impact, but mm-hmm. I do think the paper was, was making headway. Cause they, it, they yeah. were saying nobody's running our stories, but eventually I thought they did start. They start. Yeah. 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 After, you know, in 1973 and 74 when they start. And then the Watergate hearings happened. I don't remember which summer the Watergate hearings were. Was 73 or 74? But, um, Resignation the Watergate was hearings. 74. 74. So. August 8th, 74. Mm. So, uh, 48 years ago this week. But the Watergate hearings start happening and um, people start getting convicted. And uh, that's the, the beauty of the end of this movie, which you know we should talk about. is like, do you like the ending or not? No. They, they, some, we don't There's get to my talk answer. about that yet. No. I had a question about the uh, – was it Kay Eddy? They approached Kay Eddy about her ex-boyfriend who used to work for Creep. Does that bring into question personal ethics when you're a reporter? Mm-hmm. Like is, is nothing off the table? You use every source that you have available to you, even if it's putting a coworker in sort of a compromising or uncomfortable that situation. That was a convoluted sequence of events, you know, them urging her to get back with him and have a drink at her apartment or whatever it took. That seems that like spy was, stuff. I will say that was questionable, you know. Yeah. Um, if this was a you know, spy novel, yeah. Like, we need you to get the, you know, the dossier on the Russians, yeah. you know, go get this guy drunk and you know, yeah. drop something in his drink and take it. Like that would be fair game if you're, it was a CIA flick. Yeah. But I found that scene to be questionable. I wouldn't do that. If I had a coworker who knew something, someone, I'd say, can you send me his number? I'll keep you out of it. But I wouldn't ask her or him to go get confidential information even if it was the biggest story and the most confounding and amazing thing that might change the course of history okay so you'd say are you comfortable getting information from this person yeah and then if they say sure i'll get it i guess you would take it but um the journalism ethics are under such great scrutiny now in this current era because of the divisiveness in the country the hatred of the media and, you know, um, I think the hatred so of the media comes from small people with big megaphones. I would like to say that. Thank you for saying that. 
<laughs> well, I, I, I think there's everyone a, thinks they're a journalist and an expert. And there are real journalists and experts. I, I just think we've allowed to. Oh, I, I, I think that. people are don't understand how we've made the transition, but we're guilty of it. OK, we made the transition ourselves. We started tuning into media news relate. I call it instead of infotainment news related media, thinking it was news. Yeah. When it's really not, it's more punditry or, what, you know, now there's some legitimate reporting, but maybe we only have ourselves to blame. <laughs> Do you know what I'm saying? Instead of watching the nightly news, we flipped over to whatever it was, whether it was CNN. And, it becomes and, a way uh, of life. And I can imagine if you're in the business, you're going Fox. to miss out if you don't get ahead of that program. It's very competitive. Yeah, it's very competitive. It's very fast. Um, there's a lot of pressure to get the news out first yeah. and then have someone tweet it, Facebook it, put it on the site, get hundreds of thousands of page views. You know, Woodward and Bernstein had the luxury of a slower burn mm. to their reporting. They could spend hours and days. I was going to say that looked luxurious, weeks. the amount of time they could take to do yeah, it properly. And- Look, they, they're exhausted in the movie. They stayed up all night. They met, met Deep Throat in a, in a parking garage. Yeah. The reality is that for us, sometimes the news cycle is a matter of minutes. Right. And so many know, quarter pounders with those two guys. <laughs> that's right. I will say, I think there's something changing now. Not, I know we didn't get onto this uh, podcast to talk too much about the modern media, but no, we can talk I about anything people you are want. We can. Starting, I think. There's something shifting where, in my newsroom, we call it the commoditized news. It's the news that everyone has. You see it. You can get it on Twitter, CNN, Facebook, Fox News, Politico, New York Times, whatever. But we're trying to emphasize smarter, more in-depth, um, contextual reporting for a discerning audience. Yeah. Now, is that exciting? Is it, you know, click and go, click and go? No. But is it something that we believe that a certain discerning audience, an educated audience wants to have in their media consumption because they don't trust cable news and Twitter and social media. We believe yes. And, you know, so we're investing in more. And I think the New York Times is doing this and the Washington Post is doing this. We're investing in more in-depth journalism that tells a bigger story. It doesn't break news as fast, and we'll still do the quick so, breaking news So you're news going bits. with old school rules in a in a in a digital, digital age, era. 21st century way, which is a yeah. fantastic combination. We're trying. That's not to say that when news breaks, we don't pop it fast. Yeah. But we are still trying to emphasize. We talk about this in the news meetings. What is our differentiator? Everyone's going to have the story that says. Pelosi has landed in Taiwan and, you know, China's saber rattling, just to give you a story from the week when this when this is recorded. But what could what 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 can we say that's more in depth? Like we have a reporter who's a Chinese expert. What is the perspective of the Chinese regime on this? How do you go deep on that? Explain this so that people get it. I love that all the news outlets picked up saber rattling. It just is is the thing I from Vanity Fair to you know the local <laughs> rag. Everybody picked up you know these phrases, and it kind of reminds me of a a scene in broadcast news. You're, you're familiar with that one, right? And they talk about some bullshit sources. Uh, oh, that was just somebody hanging out by the White House gossiping about something, and then a reporter runs with it and says, "White House sources say." 
Do you think that was too cynical or overly cynical in, in that particular film? Or is that kind uh, of par? Too for, cynical. Yeah. And, uh, you know, reporters don't just run with bullshit sources. There are bad reporters and bad yeah. outlets yeah. and bad stories, okay? Yeah. And good but one, yeah. I've worked with a lot of reporters in Washington and almost all of them, they bother to confirm yeah. and, and and get a second source. There's Can some you... great lessons in this movie where, you know, Jason Robards playing Ben Bradley says, what is the source going to go on the record in this story? Cause right. Or, oh, oh, ask I was going to ask you, can you think of any other source where, uh, well, maybe Pentagon papers, right? Initially, but uh, any other, major news story in the late 20th century where the the sources were as anonymous as as these were i mean this seems like the biggest news story it's the biggest news story where the where this the source sources were kept largely anonymous until much um, later yeah this is the thing that uh a lot of people blame watergate and woodward and bernstein for basically validating the use of anonymous sources. There's always been anonymous sources way before this. Um, sources say, you know, I'm sure you guys have read tabloids. You've read the English tabloids yeah. um, where their their standards of journalism uh, are, are much lower than American journalism. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of people, uh, a lot of journalists feel like that the Woodward and Bernstein and Watergate gave the industry permission to go on deep background and the reality is, I think we overcorrected to be like anything that a reputable source will give us and we don't have to quote them because then they get to have their tip published without having the responsibility of having their name attached mm. to it. And I actually think the industry overcorrected on that over the decades. Okay. You know, I've had Capitol Hill sources saying, well, on mm. background, I'm like, well, you're just telling me what's in the printed bill. Like, yeah, but I don't want to be quoted. Oh, my gosh. Everyone thinks they're deep throat. <laughs> oh, God. Oh, God. Speaking oh, of deep throat, I have a question for you, Marty. I, I There were so many. Um, that other... was the other podcast about um, pornography, Sam. <laughs> that that was a Boogie Nights. <laughs> that was a Boogie Nights podcast. Know. You know what this made me think of? I needed to ask you this, Marty. Is there that much running in the newsroom? <laughs> There's a lot of running. That is a great question. I felt like the dolly uh, couldn't keep up with them. It's just, I know, right? There was a uh, lot of dramatic running toward the end of the film, especially when they wanted to get that last story out yeah. that they there got is, bitch no, left on. No, there's not that much running in the modern newsroom. What about then, though? Is there, Did like, somebody Prada, saying no running father? in the halls? Well, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I've seen people run in a newsroom when something's happening and yeah. they want to get to the computer and type it out fast. So I've seen it, but it's not as common. Here's why it, was probably more common back then. The print deadline was immovable. Oh, you had gotcha. to get, you had to type that story into the typewriter and then someone else had to copy edit it. Then it had to get typeset. Then it had to get sent on the machinery of that day down to the printing presses. Those printing presses had to print hundreds of thousands of copies. And then uh, the circulation trucks would have to take all of those bundles and then drop them on all the different street corners around this huge area and then the paper boys would have to deliver them all by 6 a.m. So That's amazing. Look at that. that. Well, Don Graham, the, the publisher after Kay Graham, who is her son, uh, personal, right? her son. Yeah. And he's friends with my dad. I've met him many times over the years oh. and uh, he's a lovely guy, by the way, met him many times. And he called it the daily miracle. The idea mm-hmm. that you could go from wow. uh, in the evening, yeah. finding out a fact and then doing all those things I just said. And then it is 
in a newspaper sitting there at someone's front stoop in Silver Spring, Maryland by 6 a.m. I I was uh, that is a miracle. You know, I, I every time I see that I kind of giggle. I probably didn't giggle the first time I saw it. When I saw it, I was probably just enthralled and went, "Oh my God, they're amazing!" Right? But after the second or third viewing, years later, I'm going, "What? What the running? Is the running just for drama?" But then this <laughs> evening, because I I watched it again, of course, before we were recording, and I thought, "How big actually is that space?" Because if there was a deadline and there maybe they really did have to run from like one end of that office area to the other, if it's as big as they're, you know, what other people say it was. It was pretty big. Yeah. But yeah. I don't know if those 30 seconds running um, helped them, you know, get that <laughs> story uh, to deadline. I just needed to know. So let's Think transition of, into the more political layer of that, that wonderful right. cake that Marty has set up for us. We we find out Woodward at one point says, yeah, I've known this guy for a long time, meaning Deep Throat. Yeah. Yeah. Is it common practice for journalists to sort of cultivate sources and keep keep sources in their back pockets, especially almost. I would guess in D.C. Yeah. For you know years and years and years. Absolutely. You know, you always stay in touch with sources. Never burn your sources. Never be mean to anyone. And, Do they two time you yeah. over? Do you think? Oh, yeah, absolutely. That happens. But uh, yeah. one of my co-workers named Mike Allen, who wrote the original playbook, who's now at a competitor that, uh, called Axios, yes. he said, be nice to everyone because today's driver is tomorrow's chief of staff. Mm-hmm. So, you know, there's a tendency to sort of look down on the lesser staff and like try to suck up to the chief of staff. Well, that 22 year old might be the chief of staff someday. It's so true. Don't burn your burn your bridges, kids. Well, uh, did we want to get into the Well, first I'd like to ask, what the hell is Howard Hunt? You know, Howard Hunt was involved in the White House and in the uh, Committee to Reelect the President. But if if you're reading that other book, uh, I know as you are, Sam, um, by my former colleague Garrett Graff called Watergate, A New History. Fantastic book. talks a lot about – it's great. Highly recommend, Garrett. I hope you get uh, books sold as a result of this uh, unsolicited promotion. But uh, Howard Hunt was a former CIA guy, and on the side he wrote like pulp spy novels. So he would get he got in with you know the the all the president's men crowd and yeah. the um you know, the committee to reelect, and he was like all about these uh, cloak and dagger dirty tricks. So yeah. he was a character. I wanted to I mean, know more about him because they they brought up that oh yeah he writes these spy novels, and I'm like how is what. You were oh, with the CIA and you write spy novels. Who's the one who did all that stuff too? Was it Kessler or Clavel? I can't remember. And probably John Le Carre. <laughs> I guess I guess you can be inspired by that and then just write about it, but change the names yeah. to protect the innocent. I mean, Hunt and Liddy planned, the, uh, you know, were were planned the burglary, and I believe they were offsite at the, the burglary. If you go down, I think his name pops up in the, a lot of JFK conspiracies too. Is I e, mean, is it E. Howard Hunt, right? E. Howard Hunt. He was, you know, he was a real CIA operative. He was involved in the the Guatemala coup, Bay of Pigs, that sort of thing. With these yeah. guys, uh, so they could overthrow a Central American country, but they couldn't figure out how to bug the, you know. Oh God, yeah. <laughs> it looked like a DMC. really amateurish the way they portrayed the break-in. 
like the flashlights are so obvious in these, you know, windows. And if you if you get either of you ever watch Gaslit, the the miniseries, yeah, is it good? They portray McCord as an absolute bumbling idiot. Like they 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 just you know he goes across, he forgot the one of the portable radios, he goes running back across it and. You know, he gets locked out. He's radioing them to come on down and let me back in. And it's uh, it's really, yeah, they're they're not portrayed as genius spies. Was there a reason that Cuban nationals were used for that particular caper that I missed? Oh boy, um, I think <laughs> it's that Liddy and Hunt and some of the other guys worked with these Cubans in. Uh, previous CIA ventures, uh, okay. probably Bay of Pigs related. Okay. So they're like, I got, Are you game so for like, this? I got some guys. Okay. Yeah, yeah. And they were passionately Republican. Yes. Would you oh, yeah. agree Still with are. that? Still <laughs> are. Yes. Yes. I'm trying to be delicate. Uh, I mean, the community uh, of yes. Down and Dade is very passionately Republican. Yes. Cuban America. Well, so was Woodward. It was a time when you could be openly – you could vote your conscience, yes, before this extreme partisanship? Or yeah, is that just so, very naive uh, of me to say? Well, there was a general feeling, and Marty can school me on this if I'm wrong, that when the Bay of Pigs failed, that a lot of people blamed Kennedy for the failure. Yeah, I mean you remember and that um, – There was a lot Kennedy, of animosity toward – yeah, we have to have Marty on for JFK yeah. if we do that. Oh yeah, I thought he oh. wanted to do it too. I do, I do. I rewatched JFK um, recently, mm-hmm. and Susan and I watched it, and we have strong feelings about it, and oh. uh, not all good feelings. Not all good feelings about uh, that movie. Uh, 30 <laughs> about years the later. movie or his portrayal? About or the, the movie. Man? About the movie. Okay. Yeah, my, movie my feelings. It's Oliver Stone. Too. Yes. So that's yeah. Mm, yeah the movie is yeah. Uh, yeah. Where were we? Bay of Pigs, Kennedy. Um, and the Cubans. Kennedy had a terrible Kennedy had a terrible start to his presidency. That's what people forget. Like he's because he was you know cut down in the prime of his life. You know the Bay of Pigs invasion was a disaster. Yeah. I believe we we're probably in a some a recession. But the Kennedy myth has been sold for for sixty years now. You know my parents still love Kennedy because they were seventeen when he was killed. And uh, but uh, a lot of these Republicans hated Kennedy, right? My German spouse's mother had a he was adored in germany and you know it would it would be very common to have a picture of kennedy in your house there which which just to to berlin right yeah yeah except i think he called it the donut you know the berliner uh, yes well that's you know i am a donut sorry ironic about uh, the politics here is that Nixon was pretty popular. He was even strangely popular with young people as well, wasn't he, Marty? At the time, um, with some like, I don't, young I conservatives. The, I don't even think it was – I mean, he remember, he won 48, 49 states. That's it was incredible. a landslide in 1972. Yeah. So he probably won all demographics. I think sometimes portrayal of popular culture 50 years later makes it seem like the youth of America hated Nixon, but – but there was a lot of good things he was doing. It's just that he was undone, as we all know, yeah. by his paranoia, the people that surrounded him, and he could never, you know, there's a, was there's he so paranoid much, or introverted, or both? 
both, both, you know, there's, there's no shortage of Nixon literature, yeah. Yeah. but he, um, you know, there's stories about how, when he was in college, he went to a small college in, in California, but it Whittier. was where Whittier and he was very, there was like the sort of cool frat boys and the football players. And he was very much on the outside of that. He, he grew to hate the elite in his college. And, and in that, so that sort of started to form him. So he okay. always had this chip on his shoulder that the elite kids, the smarter kids, the richer kids, the Ivy League kids looked down upon him. And that mm-hmm. drove him for so much of his career. And he had humble Even beginnings, when, didn't, didn't he, in his family? Very. Exactly. And, uh, you know, so much of that drove him that even when things were going really well, he had this vibe of like, well, what's wrong and what do we got to do next and who do we got to worry about? He was a very yeah. suspicious person. If you could describe the the sequence of events in the film as sort of like in acts, like a first act, a second act, and a third act, how would you order that, do you think? Sure. I think there's like a, a couple. I don't know if there's two, three, or four. Bear with me as I, as I think through these. It starts with – what I love about this movie is that it starts fast, and it never really gets – that slow it starts right there with the break-in and the courthouse scene and i think that first chunk of it is the reporters don't know what they've stumbled upon yet they're trying to figure out well this is weird the dnc and these this guy worked for the cia and there were cubans what the hell is going on and so there's the there's that first there's what i I guess i call that the, the discovery phase of whether this is a big story and this might be a big story and then there's the journalism part of it where um, their editor tells Ben Bradley, uh, they're hungry. Remember when you were hungry? Yes. Because he's they're trying to take him off this, take Woodward and Bernstein off the story because they're young and they, they want to put the White House reporters and the national reporters on the story. Oh, see, so I got that completely wrong. Is, I thought they were saying, Woodward, he's hungry. He's only been here nine months. So throw him the story. So I completely got that wrong. I'm glad you. They were trying to hand the story to National. Ah, right. You know, established, you know, White House and National reporters. The next phase is when they are, you can feel an acceleration in the movie. Yeah. And they, they're going to one person after another after another. And. You know, it starts to become a story. And then the New York Times starts to cover it. Remember that scene where it's not called a, I don't know what the technology was called, but when they sort of send the fax looking thing. Uh, that of the that is page a question Beth and I had. What is that damn contraption I don't, called? I don't know what it is, but it's some version of. Like an early fax, fax machine? machine? Yeah. Kind but, of, but I don't know but, what but it's it ca- what it was called back then. Okay. The one that he uses it's, sort of like an exacto knife to, to pull yes, that. Yes, it slices yeah. it off and they've got the story. So you feel like this is when the story takes on the next level. It's, uh, yeah. It accelerates and you think, oh, it's getting bigger. Yeah. And then mm-hmm. there's sort of like what I would call the, um, okay, first let me, let me divert into the Miami scene. I love this scene. It's kind of underrated okay. when they, where Bernstein goes and he meets with uh, Dardis, the district attorney yeah. in Miami. And by the way, I had to look up the secretary. Did you look this up? I, I didn't. I was so confused she why, how he is, got down there. Do you know who she is? Was it on the WAPO's it's ticket? It's a familiar actress. Who yeah. is she? It's Paige Holiday, who is Flo from Alice. <gasps> Yes. Oh, kiss yes. my grits. Yes. Kiss my yes. Grits yes. yes. All right. Excellent. Yes. Excellent wow. job. That was bugging me too. Right. Excellent work, so reporter Katie. Wow. 
Yeah, thank you, Google. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, I know that lady. Who is she? But, there's, but attention like, there. there's a series of accelerations in this movie, I think. And that's what's beautiful about it is that, oh, this is interesting. This is interesting. Oh, oh, he's a mommy. Oh, we got the story. Remember, he sees the check from Dahlberg and uh, Bernstein's on the payphone to Woodward's like, we got the story. I'm coming home. And then the next level is what is this is a really important scene. I think we should talk about is okay. when when he gets into the bookkeeper's house and yes. can, can, can I borrow a cigarette? <laughs> He's so familiar, so ballsy. Like, who are you that you can do that? Was he that ballsy or is that Dustin Hoffman's spin? I mean, if Dustin Hoffman knocked on your door right now and said, can I borrow a cigarette? You'd invite him in, right? Oh, yeah. Right. I think (laughs) it really disturbed, you know, Sam, when Sam and I were talking about it, Sam brought that scene up quite a bit about how, you know, would they even dream of doing that today? It's, you know. You s- reporters yeah. do still knock on doors. It's yeah. less common now, and um, people are more suspicious. These people were suspicious, you yeah. know, but I think it's less likely to happen now. But that scene is amazing, and I watched a brief two-minute video of Jane Alexander, the actress who yeah. plays the bookkeeper, and she said she was ready to go on set, but she was like, well, I need to change and get my makeup, and um, Alan uh, Pakula, the... Uh, the director, director said, yeah. you should just uh, wear that. And she's like, I'm just wearing this uh, ratty house dress that I was wearing to get myself ready for the scene. He's like, nope, that's, <laughs> that's right. You wear that. Oh, no. Every actress is a nightmare uh, scenario, I think. <laughs> God. Yeah, go on looking shitty right now. <laughs> she was lovely, so she can be proud of She was, yeah. Congratulations exactly. on and, being lovely. And good. But you guys are the movie experts. There's a lot of interesting lighting and cinematography there that I'd love to hear your thoughts on. Well, Sam, go for it. Just pass it to me. No, um, actually, Uh, go ahead. I was because I have a couple of comments on those two, on both Miami and on that one scene. My favorite scenes are, of course, the dolly shots in in the actual Wapo office. Uh, I love those moving dolly scenes. I love how it's very eerie and also hyper realistic when. Uh, Woodward has to go for his taxi and then taxi change and meet up with Deep Throat. Very dark, very dark, very – it just seemed gritty and realistic to me. And then you have the, the sort of money shot with the with things like the Library of Congress and, and moving That's up, zooming shot. up, zooming up. Can you zoom up? Zooming out, zooming out, zooming out until you're almost an aerial blimp shot. That was crazy, crazy. Beth, what I, were your – No, it's – the the Library of Congress scene is it's beautiful because I completely all the times I'd seen it I'd missed that transition to the profile of the Capitol. Yeah. The Capitol, where did we go? We went pretty much everywhere we possibly could. We couldn't go into the White House, but we did go into the Capitol. Yeah. We were in the Senate, the the gallery of the Senate, mm-hmm. and we were seeing somebody give a speech. I don't know what. They give speeches to no, and there's nobody in there. Right. Um, <laughs> and uh, we took a tour of the uh, Supreme Court and the Aerial Museum at the Smithsonian. Where else did we go? We we were literally walking distance from the White House. Wow. But it it is an incredible 
just even being close to those buildings. Oh, and we, we saw the monument. We saw the, we walked the mall and then we were in the Lincoln at sunset. And then as the sun was setting, we raced or trucked our little feet all the way over to the Jefferson. This is a marathon. Oh my and God. And the sun had already gone down and the Jefferson is just absolutely beautiful at night. Marty, I think you would agree. <laughs> How close um, have you been in the White House, Marty, to the, the, the office, the Oval? Have, have you been? I've in? been in the briefing room. Yeah. You know the white, the press briefing room. I haven't had as much White House experience. I'm a Congress guy, so yeah. I've been yeah. like every room in the entire Capitol, basically, including the Senate floor. When one of the uh, majority leaders used to do a press briefing on the Senate floor with us, which was pretty cool. Your your lovely wife once suggested this was years ago that we take a Segway tour of D.C. And I'm I'm so mad at myself for having not been available for that, or I wasn't available for that. I haven't had the Beth experience, the D.C. tour. I just have well, Next had time it. you're here. Yeah. Yeah. Well, when you have a preteen, you're just racing through. Well, <laughs> yeah. I wouldn't say racing, but mm-hmm. you have the you have at reserves of energy you didn't realize you had. But the the capital is a. There are two buildings that we went to that really impacted me emotionally, and one was the Capitol, and one was the Supreme Court. Yeah. More so than any any other place. But uh, the the two scenes, I love Miami, the Miami scene, the lighting. I love the tan. The, the, everyone <laughs> looks so tan and crazy tan, fresh. Yeah. <laughs> Just gave me lots of uh, nostalgia feelings, mm-hmm. the colors and just how people were dressed. And the, the other scene with uh, Jane, is it Jane Alexander? Yeah. I, I did love the lighting of that. And I, I love the. The sister answers the door. She asks Dustin Hoffman in, and he's like, "May I have a cigarette?" Her sister and, throws her under the bus. By the way, that's what got me about that. I don't think it was throw. No, I don't. She's think it was clearly giving her, her sister signals like, "No, don't." And she offers some coffee. He says, "Yes, why? Why? Thank you. I'll I'll have a cup." She she, she gives him a look like she's struggling. I yeah. I took it to mean that. She needs to unburden herself. I'm basically glad you're here. Sister, I don't know. I, I think I don't she know. kept saying they're going to see you. They're watching. Everyone said that. Marty, what do you think? Because she gives she gives uh, Bernstein a knowing look. She gives Dustin Hoffman a, like a. It seems like she's I like it was a weird. Come on in. I want her to talk. Yes. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we'll never know unless we interviewed the actual, you know, actress. Yeah. Which is uh, Judith Hoback Miller. And uh, Woodward is quoted as saying that she was just as instrumental in helping them with their reporting as Deep Throat was, as Mark Felt was. Wow. Wow. Let me ask you this. How ballsy, brilliant, or obnoxious is it to release this film two years after the resignation? Mm. It was – I think it was a pretty ideal time to release it. I mean, you know, the backstory, which was in this – Ann Hornaday's story yeah. from um, the Washington Post magazine just in June, this yeah. June of 2022. Um, Redford had been trying to do this movie for a while. He started reading about Watergate and thinking, wow, there's something here. And he called Bob Woodward a bunch and Woodward wouldn't return his calls. <laughs> like, can you imagine that? I mean, this is Robert Redford, who has just done The Way We Were, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, Great Gatsby, yeah. all the stuff he did in the late 60s and early 70s. And you're a relatively young reporter. And Robert Redford's calling you. I mean, if Brad Pitt was calling me today, he'd be like, I want to do a movie about you and your – I'd call it back. But yeah, I'd pass they out. Were, uh, I would probably, yeah, pass out. 
76 was a good time to release this movie because, you know, the country was still very cynical about things. Um, it was the Jimmy Carter was running against Gerald Ford that summer when the movie came out. So it was very fresh and I think it was smart to release it. If too much, if they had released it during the Reagan years, I think it might have had a different impact. Mm, yeah. Mm. Yep. I can see that. Oh, and what my favorite line from the whole movie is, is after this. Uh, when they're jotting down the jotting down the notes, you know he um, Bernstein is unloading the notes out of his pockets. He's like, I'm a walking trash can here, <laughs> and uh, he's he's describing how paranoid she is, and then he oh, yeah. starts to get paranoid. And yeah. I love this line. He's, Woodward says to him, "She's afraid of John Mitchell, and you're afraid of Walter Cronkite." He's like, I thought I ABC and CBS. It was so great. Oh, I love that. I, love that. I don't know if he actually that. said it. That is a great line. Marty, you, you asked our opinion of the lighting and, and, and that sort of thing, the way it was shot. I, I found it a very – it wasn't overly stylized. I found it more yeah. in the camp of realism. But what I loved is had this movie been made much later, then you would have – it would be a period piece, right? So you're mm-hmm. of the time. So everything is authentic, right? The the decor, right. the colors, the uh, all the right. analog elements of, of reporting, even on the radio, there there's a little nod to the um, uh, Bobby Fischer, uh, Boris Spassky forfeit. What's happening with the with the stock markets? Everything. It didn't have to be reinvented and super researched. It was yeah. of the time. The cars didn't need to be called in by the Hollywood prop department or whoever does that sort of thing. These were right. of the time. And that immediacy was very, very appealing to me. No, I, I love that. I and didn't uh, see anachronisms that you would see if you're doing an historic piece. As I right. And they're not shooting D.C. scenes in you know Vancouver, which yeah. is, you know, D.C. locals have this fun hobby of watching movies and then picking apart the scenes like, well, that's not right. That's not right. We were talking about acts. And which act did we leave off at? Him interviewing the bookkeeper. Yes. Yeah, the bookkeeper. So I think that's the middle act. The second act is they really discover the key person. And the bookkeeper is probably one of the most underrated people in the entire Watergate story because what she tells them really starts to turn the story because Mm -hmm. it goes from we don't really know how many people are involved in this because they've got the Watergate burglars and Lydian Hunt. And they're kind of like, well, what? Dahlberg is sending checks to Stans, who's the finance director, and they're kind of confused. And they get this list of the committee to reelect yeah. employees. Remember the list they print, and they're like knocking one off after another. Yes. Yeah. And and that mostly was mostly getting a door in the face, right? Right. And then the amusing one where they say, "Oh, you're Judith Abbott." She's like, "No, I'm Carolyn Abbott. I work at Garfinkel's." <laughs> I Which love is that. A, is that a the first friendly store? face? And she's yeah. like, "Come." Wrong, yeah, wrong one. <laughs> like that was a charming. That was a charming scene. Garfinkel's was sort of like a, a local department store, like a J.C. Penney's or whatever. Um, there, actually, there was it was a, higher. It was higher in than J.C. Penney's locally in D.C. Yeah. yeah, West Virginia had Frank. Is it Frankenburgers or something? It was a department store down in. I don't know, there, it, was, it was weird. Franken something, but it was but a, you, like they're J.C. Penney's. <laughs> yeah, but you get to the bookkeeper and the bookkeeper says, if you can get John Mitchell, you know, and mm. you think, oh, shit, this is, in terms of the plot, like, he was the attorney general. He's as 
high as you can get in the campaign. Then they go over to Hugh Sloan and then uh, the treasurer for the campaign. And remember who answers the door when they go to Hugh Sloan's door? It's his wife is Meredith Baxter Bernie. Yes, you know from that's right. Ties. Yes, yes, which I thought was amazing because I didn't realize she was in it. I and didn't then, too, and, until I saw the end credits, and I thought, "Where the oh, I have to go back and look at that." Yeah, yeah. and then you, then we really start to widen, like the, the 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 net widens, and the second deep throat meeting comes, and I feel like that gets us into the third act, okay. where he says, "Of course, Mitchell knew," and then there's that setback where they got a detail wrong about what Hugh Sloan told the grand jury about whether Halderman was involved. Yeah, and um, he wasn't you know, asked. The, Right. And then the right Brad, Bradley says, fuck it, let's stand by the boys. And yeah. I thought I want to like stand up and cheer because, yeah. you know, and, but then they go to Bradley's and this is my favorite scene in the whole movie where they go to Bradley's house in the night and, and he goes, wow, we're under a lot of pressure here and you guys put us there. Nothing's riding on this except the First Amendment <laughs> to the Constitution, freedom of the press and maybe the future of the country. But if you guys fuck up again, I'm going to get mad. And I'm like, I've used that quote and sent it to reporters I've worked with. And they're like, what? Some I of them are like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I did the, Some the, like, what the, you, what the two, two fists in the air. And the, you know what? I love Jason Robards anyhow. But watching him in this, in that understated performance, was just a delight. Yeah, that, that scene with uh, Judith Hoback, it, it goes from third-rate burglary to these crackpots, really, yeah. to the attorney general. And then the major campaign manager for Nixon's reelection. Yeah. And then from hundreds of thousands of dollars to they took in six million dollars in one day. She's right. like, there was so well, much. Well, they started money. with this low amount, what, three hundred thousand or three fifty? Yeah. And then right. they realized what? In and and the Dahlberg no, check, wow. we find out that was it Barker? Barker had the check. They tracked yeah. it back to Dahlberg, and it was basically laundered through a bank in Mexico, which is, yeah. you know, really weird things that they noticed going on. So. Yeah. And that they could do this by sheer investigative work, investigative journalism. It just seems so remote from the way we obtain knowledge now. But it still the happens. epistemology still of journalism. Happens. It still happens. You know, yeah. we just – do it through uh, databases and spreadsheets yeah. and still interviewing people. I feel like the, the real final act starts to turn when he goes to the, for the final deep throat meeting yeah. where he goes, CIA, the FBI, DOJ, it leads everywhere. Get out your notebook. There's more. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Your lives are in danger. And you're like, like you feel like you're at the, the peak. You know, this is the final act. What kind of player is Deep Throat that he's so enigmatic throughout all this? Like, I can't tell you more. You must find out for yourself, Grasshopper. It, it was it was all so weird and power It was even a little – yeah. I remember, I mean, what we didn't know until 30 years later was Mark Fell. He was very close to Hoover, but then he got passed over by Nixon. Did he just um, have an axe to grind with Nixon? For not appointing him. Yeah, after. because oh man, yeah, so many questions. Right <laughs> on some key points in this film yeah. about what motivated had, people. Yeah, Mark Felt thought he was positioning himself to uh, take take over for J. Edgar Hoover, yeah. but then Nixon uh, appointed someone else. Felt was still in the hierarchy and knew everything, but he didn't. He was have second a to Gray, right? And Gray, they called him right. always away Gray or something like that. So he was yeah. de facto director, so, and then. 
I guess Nixon, so this makes me wonder if Nixon really was innocent and Mark felt orchestrated a huge grudge or you know, uh, capitalized on a, a, a molehill to turn it into this colossal debacle. I think Nixon knew most of what was going on. Well, the, okay. the, ta- the well, tapes Ford sounded very earnest in the pardon, so I guess he, yeah, the tapes know. basically confirm There's everything that. John Dean said. And <laughs> yeah. in, 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 in some phases, yeah. credit to John Dean's memory, some of the some of his testimony was word for word what was on the tapes. Yeah, his yeah. recall. I was curious. Can I say about, something? Yeah, go for it. The deep throat scenes were different. This is for you guys are the film experts, but like there's a film noir quality to the deep throat scenes, like shadowy, dark, mysterious, yeah. like, you yeah. know, the, the lighting was weird, the cloak and dagger stuff. And it, it wasn't quite like the rest of the movie, but I thought that there was always this different music and this different vibe and this like. There was. It was creepy and I, I felt Woodward's yeah. paranoia. You know, did you change cabs twice? And every and so, every so <laughs> right. often there was a noise, and they'd both stop and sort of uh-huh. be startled. Like, are we going to be offed by G-men or something? I like, but felt now that we know it was felt would know where everybody's positioned. So he's yes, sort he of would. upping the paranoia factor by being so shady, yeah. by being so like with the flower pot. If that was real, I don't know if the flower pot is to the left or the right or uh, the signals for when they're going to meet. Was he mess- the- was he fucking with Woodward? No. It, is it the I don't think so, Sam. Uh, is it the last scene Marty where it the sun is coming up and we see Redford kind of, kind of going across an, an empty Yeah. Yeah. Where where is that? I don't know. I I, I Cuz those buildings look significant and I couldn't place it. It seems like it's a parking lot in some sort of a um like courtyard of one of the federal buildings but I don't know the relevance of that. Yeah, it looked like the backside of a couple of important federal buildings, and yeah. I couldn't think of what they were. I love the scene with Deep Throat when he talks about digging up dirt on Democratic opponent. He goes down this litany of things that have happened, bugging opposition, the political party opposition, the thing, the the scope of everything. And he says, "You do you think Don Segretti did all little Don Segretti did all of that, right. you know, on his own?" And it, it really kind of stokes that whole the attitudes towards it's a conspiracy. It's a conspiracy. Who are they? Who are they? But why does he but have then to I drag of, it out like yeah. that? Come on. Well, I I was thinking about that because yeah. we're so hell hell bent on it must be a conspiracy yeah. and it's they they they're doing this yeah. and I even had this conversation with Sam today I think <laughs> because I was like oh the same people that are pulling this crap back into seventy and seventy one are the same people that are flooding dark money or you know bribing politicians not bribing now they can do draw it, it mild gentlemen but then I thought. Maybe it's just complacency. You know, maybe a bureaucracy this big, you don't have people doing oversight like they should be, following the rules like they should be, and this is just going to happen anyway. So I'm just putting that out there. Marty, back to your question about the cinematic merit and your comparison to the genre of film noir. I think noir tends to put a distance between, and Beth can correct me, everybody's opinion is valid. I feel like noir puts a distance between your subject and the viewer, whereas this seemed so intimate 
and mm. gritty and realistic that I wasn't diverted by the stylized way noir is usually presented. I don't know if Beth would have a different take on that or not. I think they used the elements of film noir, but it didn't feel exactly like film noir to me. Yeah. The one thing that did kind of stick with me was the score, which in the beginning, it doesn't seem like much. Is it Shire? He was married to Talia Shire of Rocky fame and yeah. The Godfather. In the beginning, the score, it, it, the theme is sort of repeated and it, it almost sounds like a sad, mournful, jazzy type of, wouldn't you say, bluesy type of number. But then it's it's interesting. David Shire, by the way. Yeah, David Shire. During these noir parts, Marty, it does sound, a, he does something to it to where it sounds a little bit darker. Yeah. And toward the end, it almost sounds like a funeral, a march. You hear it as a march, but a funereal type of march, a darker kind of sadder, longer protracted march. I thought he got the tension. David Shire got the tension in there and the paranoia nicely too in the garage scenes. And it was used sparingly. You know how bombastic and overbearing some scores can be and take over yeah. the the movie and, and sort of step on the performances. So I liked that it was subtle enough to sort of just be a, you know, an extra. The, you know, the shadow, though, the, the, we don't ever see, you know, Deep Third, just his face is a wash in shadow. Those, those are definitely elements of, you know, as far as filming, you know, noir elements. The or thematically, they're they're very noir. The lighting was too soft, I thought, for a noir look. But I, I think we'll just agree to disagree on that. But but certainly, you guys are the experts. But can I say something about Hal Holbrook playing Deep Throat? And then, <laughs> yes, yes. This was very strange. Now you know I hadn't thought about this, but so Hal Holbrook, you know, this sort of silver-haired, yeah, you know, detective-type guy in that era perfect deep throat and then you realize 30 years later it's mark felt when he comes out and you look at pictures of mark felt at the time yeah and then hal holbrook you're like wow okay that was perfect casting without even knowing it what a yeah. strange stroke of luck yeah <laughs> i had an historical question about uh you know sloan backs off what he said to woodward and bernstein and originally, when they go to interview him, he says, I'm not going to give you any anything on Halderman. Did he have a personal loyalty to Halderman? I don't know. I don't because know. he does I mean, even change what he says to, that he testified to. Maybe he did. I mean, Halderman was smart enough to, for, until the very end, avoid being touched by any of this. Okay. But... He was the chief of staff, so he knew how to put layers between himself and all the dirty work. Marty, I have a huh. question for you regarding the first piece they wrote and got a lot of flack about where the where the sources weren't confirmed, where it was a little bit dubious and, and hazy. But the movie sort of ends with the triumph that they've overcome that and gotten their sources in line and, and gotten all of, all of the facts without showing process and procedure. And I wondered if you thought that was a shortcoming of the film or obvious, because, of course, you, they would go back and, and get those yeses and, and those on the records. I don't think it's a shortcoming of the film. I think it's a reflection of how forgiving the media-consuming public probably was back then. Like, 
well, they heard the Nixon people deny it, and they're like, whatever, and then they kept going. If that happened today and they got something wrong, yeah. if the way that, you know, about a grand jury investigation of top, you know, staff of the president, yeah. if the Washington Post or Politico or someone else got that wrong, we would be destroyed in the mm. public eye because there's so many more critics. There's such a social media, you know, outrage, lynch mob, mm. whatever you want to call it. And like you would be discredited on this story going forward. You know, it's just different now. The the way people consume media, the the, the number of media critics, the way it would be hard. Like if they made that mistake now, it would just be a different perception. You know, following what Marty just said, and now I've lost his name, the Jason Robards character, the editor, chief editor, for him to have that much faith in Woodward and Bernstein at when he's taking all of that heat, televised heat from every direction and says, you better get it right this time. Mm -hmm. He still has faith in them. He could have said, all right, that's too much heat for our our publication. It was ballsy, you know, because there was a lot at stake with the paper. You know, there's he that had their backs. Out. That's what I liked. He, he did, and that's what editors are supposed to do. Yeah. Um, even if behind the scenes they're like, oh, guys, an editor who throws you under the bus to um, the public or to a source is not a good editor. Yeah, you know, and you you could sort of publicly back someone and privately admonish them. And their publisher had their back. We, you know, after watching the post, I kind of got the the impression that 90% of what Kate Graham did was follow Ben Bradley around and go, are you sure? Are you sure? <laughs> are you sure? And, right. but let them do their job too. Yeah. And, uh, and, and st- stood behind them. So, um, yeah, there was no micromanagement. I, I love his entrance, was- by the way, when he just sort of takes the dreaded red felt pen, puts his feet mm-hmm. up and just starts crossing out stuff. And you right. can tell Bernstein's yeah. ready to explode because he prides yeah. himself Stick on his it somewhere. Yeah, writing. <laughs> <laughs> I loved all those little touches, little nonverbal touches with that ensemble. I, uh, I, I see your point, Marty. It would be hard to imagine that. Journalists today would get the same the same kind of support, yeah. right? To be wrong, exactly. And but, and, but and you the would thing your is, editor is, would would still have yeah. your back if it was an honest mistake, you know. And, and right. Woodward, right. Woodward was like, "We got the story right. We got the attribution wrong. It's not that we missed here when we were throwing the dart. We we, we didn't throw a dart. We knew exactly where we were aiming." There's a great yeah. line, and I won't get it exactly right, but Bernstein and Woodward are having a talk. And Bernstein wants the facts, and Woodward said something like, all right, you go to sleep and there's no snow on the ground, but if you wake up in the morning and there's snow on the ground, you can, you know, you can say that it snowed during the night and be correct. It's not a a ridiculous assumption. Deductive reasoning. I have all of this going on inside of me from, from the amount of data I've collected. Can't I run with that? Is it so far-fetched to deduce C from A and B? This is a great line, but there's also a, a contradictory sort of cliche in journalism where they say, if your mom tells you she loves you, uh, find a second source. <laughs> That's <laughs> cynical. <laughs> Welcome to journalism. Yeah. Oh, Marty, you have been such a delightful, delightful guest. This is a breath of fresh I, air. Don't tune them off yet. Oh. <laughs> Uh, I'll, I have a question for both of you. Oh, I was just curious. Yeah. Tell, tell. Well, actually, we do know. We do know from the tapes what? that Nixon knew. 
But it is it's weird the degrees of knowing. Was it mm. he had full knowledge? Do you think? I don't uh, know. I, I mean, the history. I, I don't remember the specific history. He had a lot of knowledge that they were doing a lot of stuff to spy and operationalize, you know, these efforts to undermine the Democrats. The specific Watergate break-in, there's some early on tape evidence that he didn't know what the hell it was, but he certainly helped orchestrate the cover-up. Well, he knew who the plumbers were. He wanted the plumbers. I look at it like he just kind of gave it tacit approval, like, yeah, whatever you guys do is fine, but I do wonder to what extent he knew what they were up to. But it was that wasn't the it wasn't the crime it was the cover up as they say exactly. Yeah. We didn't get to the uh, the casting trivia has always been interesting to me when oh. I went deep on this. Go for it. Yeah. Well, I mean, we've hit the top people, you know, yeah. Redford, Hoffman, Robards, Hal Holbrook, but yeah. um, you know, Ned Beatty being in this, I, I forgot that. Yeah. Um, he was the DA, and yeah. we mentioned Meredith Baxter Bernie. I didn't realize F. Murray Abraham was one of the arresting officers. I mean, oh I would saw you know him in the opening credits and I thought, where the hell is he? I didn't recognize right. him. I th- I've only seen Amadeus 26 times. <laughs> I know what the man looks like, but I didn't recognize him in that. I have to go. Back oh, and you said again. the guard. Oh, the Didn't guard you, played himself. Yes. That's Frank, amazing. Frank Wills, the guard played himself yeah. in the movie. And we already yes. hit Flo from uh, Alice. He, and then, uh, well, that was the most important one. Well, yes, I bet that's what she'd yeah. rather be known for than She had a fantastic Flo. tan. <laughs> and a she very did. pert figure. Yeah. A pert figure. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Her elbows were just high just and mighty. <laughs> high and mighty elbows. And well, right. I had a thing. Where's my thing? Uh, yeah. Golding, the uh, screenwriter, he had worked with Dustin Hoffman before on Marathon Man mm-hmm. prior and Butch, yep. Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid with Redford, 69. So 69 and 72 with each of those. And I wonder if he had gained an idea of what Redford's personality traits were like and what Dustin Hoffman's personality traits were like, or if he he really listened to Woodward, the real Woodward and the real Bernstein, and, and, and took his cues from their book and, and also interviews probably with them when he was writing the screenplay or their input. In the Post magazine story from uh, June of this year, he, he overwrote Golden Oak overwrote the scenes a lot and Woodward had to pull it back to make it more accurate. So there was a lot of effort by Woodward apparently to rein it in to make it more accurate to and true to the actual story. Okay. Because I did see a number of Hoffmanisms. You know, every actor, every great yeah. actor has their little Jack Nicholson. You, know, you can think of some great actors that have their little quirks that they infuse if it's The Graduate or if it's Marathon Man right. or if it's... Uh, all the president's men. I had one question. How in the world were they able to get Don Segretti's travel <laughs> records? Yeah. There were all these travel stubs, you know, plane ticket stubs and everything. I How don't remember that. I mean, it, nowadays, I don't know what the um, Federal Election Commission rules were back then. Nowadays, oh. you get all the disbursements. And remember, the FEC, I think the FEC was just creating its rules early on then but now you know exactly how all the money is spent in campaigns it's called Mm, disbursements that's right so you would get those records as the press now whether they got that um, as a public record on segretti or whether someone leaked it to them i don't know 
Oh, seems like it would be a security issue if it were public knowledge. Uh, you know, having um, Donald Segretti. I know. I'm just looking at the internet here. Yeah. Played by Robert Walden, who was in Lou Grant. <gasps> oh yes. Wait. He plays You're like right. a young sort yeah. of reporter protege. I knew he yeah. looked familiar, and he was so quirky in the film. I thought, what a character you are, your big smile, and come on in while he's saying with a big smile, I'm probably going to go to prison and be disbarred. What do you think about Donald Segretti? I'm just yeah. curious. Do you, do you, do you think he's still, alive. He's still alive? I know he is, but yeah. just, I, I won't, okay, I won't hold you. But um, I just don't, I felt like that kind of behavior is not as harmless as it's made out to be. Mm. In the film. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, uh, what did you think? Oh, my God. Dime stuff. He, he said, I was just nickel and dime stuff I'm doing. Yeah. Yeah. But he well, said something like, well, that one might have been a quarter. I can't remember what the <laughs> right. uh, offense yeah. was. But. Yeah. Eagleton's health health history was exposed, right? Yeah. Isn't that um, why he had to withdraw? Yeah. Yeah. He had electroshock oh. therapy. Wow. And, and that was big a big scandal. Yeah. But they were digging up all of this stuff. Oh, they were they were trying to break into people's, uh, you know, um, psychiatrist offices. Uh, different scandal, but on the Pentagon Papers, they were trying to break into, um, gosh, who was the guy? I'm blanking now because it's late Ellsworth. In time zone. Ellsworth's psychiatrist's office um, after he leaked the Pentagon Papers. Oh, that's just sad. Unbelievable. That is truly egregious. And I know that we say that it was it was uh you know jaywalking compared to some of the stuff that we've seen recently but i, I think it's a, a matter of well sam would say it was like presentism we can't stand we can. here and look back and say it wasn't as bad because at the time it really i think it, i think there have been underhanded maneuvers by every single administration no matter which side of the aisle you cheer for and mm. he got caught is is there any difference between controlling all the factors that keep you in power which is what nixon did or tried to do versus trying to basically overturn the results of a, of a general election is there any difference? are you gonna go there beth because i don't know well i mean i'm not i'm not mm. i don't think this is anything controversial i think it's it like is. saying how so that's like saying the earth's flat I, because we have specific <laughs> opinions about that being belonging you, wait, to the parties. Are you are you are you saying it? Am was, I censoring myself? No, go ahead. No, but were <laughs> were they tourists? I don't know, Marty. Were they tourists? Um, they were um, insurrectionists. We yeah. all know that. Okay, that wasn't my point. You damn well know it, Beth. <laughs> well, I don't. I'm I'm confused. What were What are you concerned with? My concern and is, we can edit this our, out. Our audience <laughs> is mixed. If you're talking right. about political affiliation, we have certain personal views that, that, that say this is egregious, unacceptable, absolutely indictable, you know, just just not on for entertainment value, because we do <laughs> movies. Do we want to cut anybody off by making a clear statement about that? We did. We did make a clear statement about but the, the overturning it's of clear, Roe v. Wade, but it's been reported. It, it's by his own words, by people close to him, it, that there the intention was whether it was his intention or some other group's people, a mm -hmm. uh, group of people, that they wanted to delay the certification. Yeah. And I don't see how that's controversial. Watergate was using the tools of government to undermine political opponents. The other one, uh, January sixth, was more like um, my. Yeah. People trying to overthrow democracy. 
my my point process. was though you're trying to control results of elections by Nixon doing it one way and somebody doing it some other way and it doesn't even have to be it can be a guy named Bump from 20 you know 76 who gets elected well, you know that Watergate they, was much larger you know the weatherman and 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 that whole scene as well leading up to that you know the unrest the tales of Vietnam the cynicism I'm speaking specifically to the elect. That's what creep was. Creep, creep was something with that was the committee to reelect the president was something beyond just his reelection, like like the the Republican Party. This was something specifically tailored for Richard Nixon by Richard Nixon's supporters. I think at, at the end of the day, I think when you have the entire FBI at the upper echelons uh, accommodating that at a secret level, it, it's very different from the mob mentality and. But there, there, there level were groups of that the were orchestrated, that were coordinated. But we can drop it and cut it out. I don't want to cut it out. I don't believe it's no. I mean, we can. I'm just saying. It, I, I don't. I just don't see where the controversy is. I, if you. I don't know where you want to pull that. I would back call to. those two different animals. I really would. Watergate and the January sixth insurrection. The Not commonality me. to me is, um, you know, corruptly using the levers of power to undermine democracy. Thank you. Now, and then I it don't was know a general why you election. A big thank you. I, I say thank you as well. Yes, there are commonalities, but <laughs> but, but you're talking about a violent mob is different. Mob than, mentality you know, versus a complete inside job. Dirty tricks. Yeah. yeah, those are different things. Thank you. The, the goal was the same. Sorry. The goal was the same. That that was essentially if my point. If you want to say Marty, the goal is the same, me. but but the tools are very different. If I'm you're looking at the January sixth insurrection, <laughs> my God. I mean, Richard Give Nixon it. is dead, and he resigned. So that those are facts. Yeah, I, that's where I wanted to draw the line too. Not because I don't agree with you, Beth. I do, but because of. Good business practices. I like what Marty said, world. which was pulling the pulling the levers of the power. I like to be popular for your own advantage. It. Yeah, well, excessively so. I How's would say uh, whenever is you that, edit this, is that no, because they're different <laughs> modus operandi. You have I'm the just gonna entire with Marty, FBI, no CIA agents versus just a mob. You're assuming that the no, I, I think planted uh, here military, and there. Military uh, veterans, <laughs> state um, legislature. Yes. Mr. Marty, Martin Katie. Wait, Thank wait, you. what are you watching? We always do that. Martin Katie, what are you watching these days? I am watching a couple shows. Severance on Apple TV, which is twisted and strange and Ooh. weird. Um, okay. And I'm not even sure I can explain What genre why. is this? I don't even know. This is dark, dystopian chip in your head and when you go to the office you forget who you are on the outside oh, yes you yes the yes office, that's right you um you forget what your job is you just know that you go to this place the other one i started which is wonderful and uh, dark and exciting is jeff bridges the old man where he is a um cia operative who who's old in the 70s and gets discovered and people are coming after him oh we, okay i think that's about it those are our shows. I, I think that I'd really be into Severance. Severance I think I'd be really yeah. into that. I'm not a well, – I don't know if I'd be into the second one. I'd have to give it a try. But Severance, I'd be, I think I'd be in. How about you, Beth? What, what are you into? 
Well, I've watched entirely too many uh, panels and documentaries on Watergate (laughs) and Nixon. But I will say this. I'll tell you what I did come across. An old documentary called The Summer of Judgment. And it's it's really all about the uh, committee to investigate the break-in. Okay. And I think the break-in. But, oh, my God. Who is the... The congresswoman from Minnesota, Nevada, Idaho, California, um, Oregon, Alabama. She's deceased now. Barbara Jordan. Barbara Jordan. Barbara Jordan. Yeah, Barbara Jordan. I don't know. I can't remember what to say. But it, it kind of it's a brief overview of the votes for impeachment and. It's just really well done, and it's dated. It's it, it looks like it was produced in 1980. It was probably up on VHS somewhere, and somebody you know probably converted it to digital and yeah. uploaded it to YouTube. But it's it's excellent. It's really well done, and it it kind of just goes into how people were very divided politically on the committee, and how they were able to come together and come to a con, you know for the most part a consensus on how they were going to vote. And I, I just I cried. It was oh, I'm gonna have to, it was I'm gonna have to people really struggled. And, you know, we we bash Congress all the time. But there are some good people in Congress and there are people that go to Congress or get into politics or they run for office for they fight the good, good reason fight. Yeah. because they want to yeah. do something good or feel like they can make change. Yeah. And um, that really I don't know. It just kind of re- renewed my faith. Just watching that whole. Uh, I need to watch that. Then. I'm becoming a terrible. And and the interviews that are in there, but uh, yeah, it was really good. Highly recommend it to give you a good overview of of the hearings. Doesn't go into all of it, but yeah, that was good. What I realized this week regarding my viewing had to do with listening. I downloaded the uh, the book Marty recommended, Watergate: A New History. That's right. And I thought. I can get through 27 hours of listening in two days, and actually I can't. It's just not possible. And I actually felt very nervous about this interview, like, okay, we're talking to somebody who really knows his shit. I better do studies. I felt like I was studying for my comprehensive exams. And so tonight I watched the penultimate episode of Stranger Things. And uh, so tomorrow is the, the finale for us. And then I had to, I, I needed to wipe. I needed to clean my palate, so I went back and watched episode one, season one of Modern Family. Just absolute bubble gum after, <laughs> you know. Just I needed the bubble gum after after doing deep this deep dive. You bring us to a higher level, Marty. Well, I'm glad to do that. Now um, let's go back to and watch the January sixth hearings when they oh, come up. Not to yeah. bring back to current politics, but Wait, we know why did that you even bring that up? Now I feel hungry to well, try. There's yeah, really. Be, well, we know there's going to be some. <laughs> what is the all the president's men version of January 6th hearings and investigation that will come out in the coming years? That's the movie that we'll all watch in the coming years. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, after watching some of the documentaries I've seen, I, I have second thoughts about who John Dean is. I don't know. I'm I'm just very conflicted. I do, I do feel like. Cassidy Hutchinson was sort of the John Dean moment, at least for me. But it was only because of one thing she said during her whole testimony. And that was, I was watching them, oh, what was the, deface the Capitol. And it was just sort of the way she said it, because they were defacing the Capitol. And how that really moved her to want to 
Mark, do something. This person, do something. Can we, can we call, you know? And that really stuck with me because I probably feel the same way. You know, looking at the, just having been there and, well, and feeling the, the, uh, this is a great nation, but it's up to us to be engaged with it as far as the political process and ensuring that it stays great with a free press. Yes, absolutely, Marty. Is that a good way to uh, end this thing? <laughs> yes, I'd like to end on an up note if we could. <laughs> if we can, we can get there. <laughs> yeah, so many people. I don't know. I I get choked up if I think about it too much because it really is. People have generations of people from all walks of life have sacrificed to get us to where we are today. And I'm not talking about politicians. I'm talking about everyday Americans. And um, I agree. Yeah, when she said they're defacing the Capitol, it just really hit me. Well, I will say, not to belabor the January 6th discussion, but reporters I work with, and I worked in that building for many years, I I, in the press gallery and in, I'd go out into the gallery to watch speeches and reporters that I work with and and my current publication and others quite literally um, hid under chairs when... Mm the uh, rioters were busting through the Capitol. And there were people who thought they might not make it out that day because they didn't know how bad it was going to be, who was armed, what, like the Capitol was stormed that day. And people I know and work with, some literally were scared for their lives. So it was, you know, it was very personal for me to see that happen because I'd worked in that building every day and suddenly it was being overrun. Wow. That must have been surreal. It was surreal watching it. That's not the up moment you wanted to end. No, I really guys, wanted another one. Can moment, somebody produce moment. one out of their butt? Um, I don't know. Disasters. Tune in. Yeah, Marty. Hey, Marty. Can I News get my thank you, Marty? What thing a great now? segue. Go ahead. Go ahead. All right, uh, Marty. You have been a delightful and lovely guest, and we are so honored that you took time out of your busy schedule to talk to us. And, and and to give so much insight to us about this event that we've all heard about, but very few of us have really looked at in depth. And, and you made us do that. You made us have a look at that. And you taught us a lot during this episode, too. And I appreciate that. Thank you. It's been a lot of fun. I get to talk about two of my favorite things, which is um, great movies and journalism. I have a tremendous amount of respect, no matter how much shit I give you sometimes on <laughs> <laughs> Tremendous part of amount the deal. of respect for what you do. Mom. You are the fourth and pillar, and that, that yeah, deserves respect. Well, thank you both, and uh, I look forward to hearing this whole episode. We, we're, I, I hope we I have enjoyed, enjoyed it. it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> <Let's>... <laughs> uh, we were here. <laughs> it's hearsay. All right. All right. All right. Um, Take care, everyone. You. Marty, have, um, a, have a wonderful time. Give Give my regards to Sue's. It will. It will. I'm so sorry. For what? <laughs> she'll, see, she'll see you guys in uh, the mountains of North Carolina in a couple months. Oh, my God. I can't wait. Very soon. Oh my, I think I just it's, screamed that, but I, I need that so badly. It's lovely up there. You'll love it. <sighs> can't wait. Can't wait. Be well, sir. Bye-bye. Yes. And, and everybody, have a good evening. Be we'll kind to one another week. in these wacky Marky. times and stay cool. All right. Bye-bye.